Edinburgh is famous for many things. The festival, the old town, its contribution to the modern world, its ghosts, and it's also famous for its green spaces. In fact, Edinburgh has more green spaces than any city in the UK, with 49% of its area classed as a green space. Every major suburb in Edinburgh has its own green space. We have the famous Arthur's Seat, an extinct volcano that's steeped in history and worth an episode on its own. Leith has Leith Links, probably most famous as the place where the rules of golf were first documented in April 1744. Earlier, during the rough wooing in 1560, forces from Scotland and France fought against Protestant Scots and troops from England in the Siege of Leith. Ultimately, the Scots and French were victorious and the Treaty of Leith was signed. Though there's little evidence remaining of this short-lived but bloody conflict, English cannon mounds are still visible to this day. To the south of the city lie the meadows, an area once underwater and known as the Burrell Lock. The meadows were used for cattle grazing until as recently as the 1920s and notably, the local football teams Hearts and Hibs used to play here. In 1886, the International Exhibition of Industry, Science and Art was held and a huge grand hall was built to host the exhibition. This was to draw in crowds of close to 3 million people. An Act of Parliament was later passed that banned building on the meadows, so the impressive structure was pulled down as a result. Across from the meadows is another smaller green space called the Brunsfield Links. The Brunsfield links have important roots going back hundreds of years. The park as it stands was established in the 18th century as a golf course and is widely believed to be one of the earliest locations where golf was played. The surrounding area was known as the Borough Muir, a vast estate that was gifted to Edinburgh by King David I in the 12th century. The Muir was once part of the ancient forest of Drumselsh, a royal hunting ground and said to be home to Hartis, Hindus, Todis and sick-like manner of beasties. As with the meadows, this area was also used by drovers for cattle grazing before they would then drive their cattle through to the famous Cowgate. Sadly, the only part of this land still uninhabited is Brunsfield Links. Within Brunsfield, on what's now known as Gillespie Crescent, once stood a manor house called Wright House previously owned by the influential Napier family. Wright House is thought to have been built in the 14th century and stood for over 200 years until it was partially demolished and repurposed in 1800 to build the James Gillespie Hospital and School. James Gillespie was a well-known Edinburgh merchant who died in 1797. Towards the end of its existence, the Napiers had moved out and Wright House passed into ownership of various others eventually being rented out by a Lieutenant General Robertson, who'd relocated to Edinburgh while his property in Perth was being renovated. The Lieutenant General brought with him his manservant, a man named Tom. At the time, he had a more unfortunate sobriquet, based on the prejudice of the age. We don't need to repeat here. Tom, being the help, slept on the ground floor. His room was basic, he had a bed, a dresser and a large built-in cupboard on the side of the room that was opposite to his bed. Unbeknown to him though, the room had an ill-favoured reputation dating back years. On his first night in Wright House, Tom was about to find out why the room deserved its reputation. 
Oblivious to the reputation of his surroundings, Tom settled in for his first night, and soon he drifted off to sleep. After a while, he became aware that something was not quite right in his room. Opening his eyes, he was met with a horrifying sight. Straining to see in the darkness, Tom could make out the figure of a woman, a headless woman, bathed in an ethereal glow, walking out from the locked cupboard, carrying something in her arms, something that he couldn't quite make out. The ghost proceeded to walk across the room, then turned back and walked into the cupboard. Shocked and unable to comprehend what he'd just witnessed, Tom got out of bed and gingerly walked over to the locked cupboard. He tried the handle. It was still locked. No one could have walked in or out of it. He took his bedsheet and decided to sleep elsewhere. When morning broke and Tom told the Lieutenant General of what he'd seen, he begged him to let him sleep in another room. But this was to no avail, and worse, Tom was assumed to have been drunk and warned of the dangers of the demon drink. Night two arrived and Tom had started to believe that perhaps his master was right and he had imagined it. With his confidence, he soon drifted off to sleep. Shortly after, the same thing happened as the previous night. Awoken by the same unusual feeling, Tom opened his eyes and saw the headless woman, carrying something, walk through the cupboard to the other side of the room. Then she turned and walked back through the cupboard. As with the previous night, Tom was unable to catch sight of what the spirit held in her arms. Night three, and Tom, although exhausted from two nights of little sleep, endeavoured to stay awake until the woman appeared, which she did. This time he was fully awake and as prepared as he could be for what he'd been witnessing, and was able to finally distinguish what the woman cradled. A baby. The apparition appeared like clockwork every night for three months, and must have shredded poor Tom's nerves. Not only was he visited each and every night by a headless wraith, and despite his pleas, protestations and pleading, he was never believed. After three months, it was time to go back home to Perth, much to Tom's delight. While poor Tom's torment was at an end, this was, however, not the end of the haunting. After his death, the Lieutenant General's niece visited his Perthshire home, seeking the ageing Tom. Mrs Robertson was acquainted with the new occupants of Wright House and had come to ask if Tom knew of any unusual events that may have occurred during his short stay with her uncle. You can imagine the relief Tom felt at finally being believed and that the encounters he'd experienced years earlier were able to be shared. As Tom relived his nightly experiences to Mrs Robertson, he was relieved to hear that the present occupants were not using the haunted room as a bedroom, but the apparition had been observed frequently, following the same pattern at the same time of night. As is often the case with stories like this, the terrible truth of why this room was haunted was soon unearthed. The builders tasked with constructing the new hospital and school made several major alterations to Wright House. One of them was to break up the built-in cupboard. And upon doing so, they noticed that some of the floorboards had been replaced at some point. There was an area of wood that was more modern than the surrounding floorboards, and soon they were able to access the area under the floor. The workmen nervously removed the floorboards and peered into the dark space. What they saw would shock them. A small, old, homemade coffin 
rotting and dusty. Morbid curiosity got the better of them and the coffin was opened and found to contain two skeletons. One was of a headless woman and the other was of an infant, lying across the chest of the female. The realisation then hit them as to why the woman was headless. Although she was by no means a tall woman, the wee coffin was too small for her frame. Whoever buried her had also removed her head for the sole purpose of stuffing her desecrated body and that of her infant child into the tiny coffin, before she was hastily buried under the floorboards, to be forgotten about. Upon discovery of the coffin and the bodies, the truth was soon pieced together and the identities of the lady and her child were established, although they've now been lost to time. It's believed that a previous owner of the right house had gone off to war, which war is unknown, but he departed leaving his young wife and newborn child in the care of his elder brother. Tragically, the child's father died while fighting, and as was the way in those days, his money and property passed to his young son rather than his brother. Mad with jealousy of this infant, younger and wealthier than him, the man's brother murdered both the child and its mother so he'd stand to inherit his brother's wealth. And this he did. But at what cost? <laughs> 